0: Just two good old boys Three Two good old boys, boys. Never meeting no harm we never saw They had no hair Since the day they was born Straighten the curves Straighten the curves Flatten the heels The coffee might get them But the Lord never will For casting away
1: Live from the basement of Voodoo Sound, it's time to get your mojo working. Tips and tools to get you working at your best in both your business and your personal life. Welcome to the Mojo
0: Radio Show. Get a mojo for free
2: Mojo for free But understand why I can't get face TV? No! Hey everybody and welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, the little program that is designed to help you get your mojo working in or out of work. If you're new, welcome. If you're a regular, welcome back. Thank you AP, the dulcet tones of Andrew Peters, arguably one of the greatest voices in the world. Arguably. <laughs> Too much? Anyway, we're in season five, folks. Uh, we love having you here. How quickly the years have passed. If you haven't done us a favor yet, get onto iTunes, leave us a review, just one like, Just throw us a bone. Sadly. We don't have any appetizers or sponsors on the show. The only thing that keeps us going is hearing from you. An email, a call, stop us in the street or at a gig, or... Write something for us on iTunes, that's all we ask. Just throw us the bone, keeps us going, gets our mojo working Driving the big red bus, speaking of mojo The man behind the panel, Robo, welcome to this week's show Beep beep, move over, how are you? Yeah, good mate, this week we're uh, heading to the Olympic stage
1: Yeah, one of the biggest stages in the world And uh, a lot of lessons to come from it that we've learnt so
2: far And I'm sure we'll learn heaps more today
1: The Mojo Radio Show.
2: So our guest this week is Martin Reeder. Now, Martin was a member of the Canadian beach volleyball team that went to London in 2012. Martin's a guy, what's fascinating when you read about Martin and his journey is that from a very, very young age, he was clear on what his dream was. And today, he's a successful coach, he is mentoring people, he is a podcaster himself, uh, terrific guy, introduced by us by another, let's just say by the man, Stan Peak the man, another <laughs> fantastic guest only hmm, maybe two months ago on the show, Robert, was it? No, Stan not even.
1: Peake? Yeah, about three weeks ago, four weeks ago.
2: And Stan enjoyed our chat here in the show and said, you've got to meet a mate of mine. His name is Martin. He's a former Olympian and a cool guy. So we thought we'd find out for ourselves. So uh, Martin... Welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Thank
3: you very much, man. Excited to, to be on it from the other side of the world. We've had so many Canadians on the show lately, I'm starting to feel like an
2: expat. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should move to Canada, Gaz. Uh, negative. <laughs> 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 uh, they don't they'd have a good enough beer over there. Um, man, when, um, when people meet you today in the street and they ask you what you do, how do you like to reply?
3: I am in the middle of a transition right now. So it's a complicated one, but generally speaking, I, I say I'm a high performance coach, both for, for youth and for, for pro athletes.
2: For you personally in your life now in that transitioning phase, as you sit here today, how do you personally define
3: success? I'm, I might have to pull from, from John Wooden, coach John Wooden from the States where it's, it's peace of mind, knowing that you've, you've done your best, uh, there there's been a lot of opportunities for me to to succeed and to fail. And some of them I, I knew I gave it my all and I was able to let go of it regardless of the outcome. Uh, and other times I, I knew that I held on to it and you know there's there's a bit of regret there. So certainly for me, regardless of what the the pathway is, it's as long as I was able to to give it absolutely everything and, and have no regrets.
2: You you talk about the dream you had to represent Canada and go to the Olympics, how far back can you trace that, mate? Like when when you think about the moment where it first came to mind for you, how far back is that?
3: When I came out of the womb. <laughs> <laughs> my, my mother was a professional tennis player. My dad played pro rugby. Um, I, I was born and raised being called champ. Um, you know, I always wanted to be a professional athlete of some sort. And uh, I was a high performance swimmer at one point. I'd like to believe I would be the Canadian uh, Ian Thorpe, uh, but I wound up getting an allergic reaction to chlorine and got exercise induced asthma and had to pull out of the pool at age 10. Uh, but being six foot seven uh, and having size 15 feet, that would have been the perfect uh, occupation for me. Uh, but I was able to uh, to find beach volleyball. There was a, a demonstration in my hometown on Vancouver Island in an ice rink. They put a bunch of sand and some of the best athletes in the world at that time from the States came up in 1992 to, to do a demonstration of beach volleyball. Still, for the life of me, I have no idea why it happened, but I was one of the kids that saw it, loved it, went down and, and played in between the game or the sets or, or after the game uh, with the ball and I wrote in a journal in grade six, I wanted to play professional beach volleyball. In 1996, it was an Olympic sport and then wrote, I want to win gold in the Olympics. So uh, early on, let's just say. Do you still have that journal? I have looked for it all over the place and unfortunately it's, uh, it is gone. I had it for a little while and we uh, yeah, just must've been lost in the in the shuffle. So you, we're going to trace this through, but you end up representing Canada
2: in London at the Olympics.
3: What I'm Correct. curious yes.
2: about is- Basically, within months, you retired from the sport. So you've played at the pinnacle of your sport in the greatest sporting stage on the planet. You said you're in the best shape of your life and then you retired. Talk us through
3: that. What was going on in that? What was the mindset behind that? So beach volleyball is a bit of a different sport. I I call us an athlete entrepreneur sport. I had to be so resourceful uh, throughout the times because I was self-funded and uh, there's not a lot of prize money in the world tour. So leading up to it, I, as much as I was a a full-time athlete, I was also a full-time entrepreneur and all the way up to it, uh, it was never a guarantee that we were going to make it to the games. Uh, So our qualification was actually the last qualification sport to be named to the 2012 Canadian Olympic team. So what I mean by that is our qualification match, which gave us the right to go to the Olympics, happened two weeks before the Olympics. So we had no luxury of being able to prepare for it. It was legitimately put everything into it and and fingers crossed. And and we were the the team that wound up winning winning a berth for Canada, which was, Absolutely incredible. Uh, so I realized that it could have been taken away from me at, at any moment. And the amount of energy and effort I put into that, um, if I was to go into another quadrennial, or that, that's us in, in athletics speak, if I was going to put another four years of my life into sport and I was only doing it for myself, that wasn't good enough. And so I, I decided that I wanted to put the energy that I had done in that last quad into retiring, finding a passion outside of sport, and and really investing in in building a a trajectory for my life. And then with the intention of coming back into sport after that.
2: You know, it's interesting, Martin, when I've spoken to Navy SEALs and I'm always curious about how much discipline and direction they have when they're in the forces and they've got a job to do. Yet they come home and many find it difficult to find their way. And then you do hear about athletes that retire and really struggle because they lose that I woke up in the morning, I knew what I had to do, I had my process for the four years of the Olympics. Was it a time for you when you because I know it was the year after, early in the year after where you decided to retire, was it a matter of you discovered a new purpose or did you do you remember sitting down to discuss what your purpose really was or what it could be? Because that that's what tends to happen with the military guys I talk to. And it seems to happen with a lot of athletes or people who lose a job and got to start over. It's The catalyst for that is finding their purpose.
3: How did that play out for you? I'll speak to two issues that uh, that come to mind. One is I believe that I was chasing immortality in sports. So like I said, it, it wasn't good enough for me to just do another four years to, to get uh, some level of higher achievement for myself within it. So I didn't want to spend four years chasing immortality where it was just only for me. And then two, I felt I had so much to offer. I had so much life energy and, and I really love uh, fitness as as well as using the human body and, and the human psyche to, to help other people achieve their best. And so I decided to take that energy and of that quad and invest in building something that I didn't know what it was. So I, my purpose was really clear and, and I wound up writing, I wanted to shift Canadian health culture. Uh, and and so I, I set out to do that.
2: If we go back to the qualifying for the Olympics, and I've heard you say that there was a lot on the line and you had to go through a lot of rigor in order to be selected. And it almost seems to me that getting, quali- getting the qualifications to go to the Olympics was actually the dream as opposed to winning or getting a podium at the Olympics. And this is Johnny from hearing you talk about with, with the how much energy-focused discipline work just to get into the team. And then you said it almost was a relief to be in London to compete. When you got to London... Did you feel as though you could really win? Like what was the feeling when you got to London after you'd been through so much just to get there? Talk me through what it felt like and what you guys as a team we was do you think you could get on the podium? Is that explain
3: that to me. So we were ranked about 45th in the world and then wound up qualifying for the Olympics which is top 24. So we we had already achieved a level a new best for our team and our team was relatively new. So we climbed the ladder, ladder pretty quickly, but I like to describe the Olympics as an open concept. It is such a gigantic event and it is so enormously full of pressure, new experiences and excitement you've never had before your surroundings totally new. There's delays you've never had to experience before. It, it, it's just, it's its own entity. And so I, I usually joke that he who shits their pants the least wins in the Olympics. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because <like> a studio, <laughs> man. You, you have to learn how to <laughs> handle this pressure. And so there was this hope that we knew we had an opportunity to capitalize on on being a top 10 team in the world because everyone, there's a bit of equalization because the pressure is so high and it's new territory for a lot of people. And so we, we played as, as best we could. We wound up getting 17th, but we set our sights on top 10 plus. And, uh, you know, we had some really big battles against top five team in the world, uh, from Brazil. That was probably our best game where we, we lost by a hair, but yeah, in the Olympics, if, if everybody, um, does their best. Uh, I think there, there's a little bit of equalization. Have you ever known
2: pressure like that before?
3: No, it was, I mean, it just, it's just magnified like you couldn't even believe. I think there's something like 40 million viewers uh, online, uh, on television. There's 14 HD cameras surrounding the court. Um, there's 12,000 people in a stadium surrounding you. Um, it's just an unbelievable amount of pressure and eyeballs on you that you just can't simulate. So
2: did you guys perform to the best of your ability? Like, were you happy delivering in the moment on that big stage? Because handling the pressure there, if it's something you've never done before, I'm just curious to know, how did you handle that pressure
3: to deliver? So th- this is one of the the main stories that I tell in, in some speeches I give where I had to give myself permission. Uh, regardless of what was happening outside of my control, what I did have control over was was my own presence. And so when we were in the the hallway going into the stadium, twelve thousand people in the first game just pounding this aluminum stadium, I could feel my the air in my lungs vibrating, and uh, you know starting to shit my pants a little bit. And uh, so I I had a nice little moment with my partner. And um, what wound up flashing before my eyes was every single stage of the way leading up to that moment where I had earned the right to be there from you know being a young teens winning the island championships to team British Columbia to team Canada and then moving up in the ranks to earning all those bursts that season to then being there in that moment I, I realized that my partner and I had earned the right to represent Canada and it was on us. And in that moment, I took full responsibility and the pressure kind of dissipated and I ran out there and we played England at home for the first game and uh, it was brilliant. We wound up winning. Uh, But we, we gave ourselves permission to play as, as best as we could. And we, and we did, I'd like to say that we didn't necessarily overachieve, but, but we were playing at the limit of, of what we, we had trained for that season and uh we we lost to italy to to be eliminated and that that was just a really tough game against a team that wound up uh going going deep in the tournament so you know we we did play play really really well and there's always a little bit of regret from certain plays and things but uh you know what we we did as much as we possibly could based on uh the time we'd spent together and yeah we, I left pleased. My partner had a few things that he was holding on to, and he wound up pushing for another Olympic quad. But I myself was, I left very complete and then enjoyed the rest of my time at the Olympics. You said in London, and
2: the quote you said was, you gave yourself permission to play freely. And then you followed that by saying, but we don't do that in life. What's
3: your take on that? You know what? As I get more into performance and I really start to realize that sport, academics, life, music, all pursuits are one and the same. And I believe that people don't wake up with an intention or or much of an intention beyond just existing throughout the day. And there's so many people that don't quite understand it the narrative that they have for themselves every single day is in their own control. And a lot of people just wind up going through the motions. And so that moment that I realized I needed to give myself permission, I I began to live very, very, very actively and and purposefully. So that the aliveness that I had in that moment, I took control of it. And so I do my best now to, to bring that into regular life. But it's shocking how many people don't necessarily take control of the opportunities that are in front of them because they're they're waiting for something to happen or they're waiting for alignment. So that's what I meant by that.
2: What's the exercise you would do? So give me an example of somebody listening going, I, I want to give myself permission to play freely. They work in an office or they work in the field as a tradie or they're in the being of service to others through emergency response, whatever it may be. How do you do it today with the corporate world you're playing in? How do I give myself permission to play freely each day?
3: Brilliant question. Where I would start is by controlling what is in your control and letting go of what is outside of your control. And by doing that, allowing yourself to be as present as you possibly can in every single moment. And so where I like to start is, is really how do you own your morning routine and your morning ritual so that your day shows up in the best way possible? So understanding sleep is critically important, but not only sleep, but the quality of your sleep. So is the rhythm of your sleep when you go to bed and when you wake up regular is, is, is consistent? Are you eating foods in the morning that make you feel good? Are you even eating food in the morning? Uh, and then how you plan for your day so that you have energy throughout the day, because there's a lot of people that think that they're victims victim to the situation, but that unfortunately that situation is really just poor planning. And so it's really building daily, minute by minute, on positive behaviors and positive thoughts. And, and over time, you're going to be able to change your reality by taking ownership of the present moment. And, you know, by letting go of the, the looming deadlines and, and stopping worrying about those and just being present and, and breathing, you can create this small momentum in your life of controlling the controllables to then be able to achieve what it is that you want to achieve, whatever that means. So you just talked
2: about the moment. I'm always interested in hearing from people like yourself, Martin. You are, are back of court. You guys are called out. The cameras, the moment, you've worked for years to get there. There's a big crowd, worldwide audience. How how did you bring yourself into that exact moment to be on the sand to perform? Like, did you have a ritual, a routine? What was the dialogue you took yourself through to go from actually being someone and being overawed by it to being in the moment, about to take the
3: first point Ha, ha, what's your process for that in that moment there can't be mind you can't think it, it has to be trained prior to that so using the breath as an anchor as a way to really sink into that moment having an acceptance with your partner uh, you know beach volleyball being very special where you're sharing the court with one person like we need to be on the same page and and totally be connected so we've set that moment up for us to then be connected so there's no worries there and legitimately I can't describe it other than the the moment really allows for me to focus on the ball and the two other people on the other side of the net myself and my partner and and as that pressure of the game and that first whistle happens you just enter this tunnel that you've trained yourself to be in day in day out leading up to it. So, you know, for me, there, there is no secret other than it's not about quantity of repetitions leading up to the games. It was about quality. We really focused on being so intentional with all of our repetitions and all of the drills that we did and the people that we sparred against. And, and we built so much focus within our practice so that it just showed up naturally within that moment if, if that helps.
2: It's interesting way. We've, we've had a bit of an undercurrent. It's something I've been interested in talking to people about focus because uh, the psychologists and psychoanalysts will say that currently we have the attention span, the average human. has got the attention span less than a goldfish. So the goldfish is nine seconds, we're eight seconds. And, we, and if there was one thing we could teach our children, it's how to focus. And Cal Newport, who wrote Deep Work, said on our show last October, he said, focus is a new IQ. How did you train that? Because hearing you say that, and I totally buy into what you guys did and what you talked about.
3: How did you train focus? So I'll speak to the nervous system where we have two. We got the parasympathetic, which is the down regulatory, where we're looking to calm the mind and calm the body. And then we have the sympathetic, which is that, you know, fight or flight response where you're in that moment, you're either feeding one or feeding the other. And so things can really get into this positive feedback cycle where the more you're looking to go faster, you're breathing faster, the plays are happening faster, you're getting more fatigued within a certain amount of time and things start escalating, you're, you're perpetuating the sympathetic, which is that response where things start to get really crazy and you start to lose the mind. And so it's really being intentional of slowing things down as much as you can. And so the the pillar of our game was a certain tempo. And whenever we had an opportunity to slow the game down and own our side of the court and own when the ball was on our side, or let's say behind the service line, when I'm holding the ball, like I slow it down. I'm not rushing to get rid of it. I'm not panicking. I'm I'm controlling every single nanosecond that is within my control. And so when you're doing that, then you allow for the breath anchor, and you're just really intentional in slowing things down. You're able to then build your own focus. And so I'll relate that to, in, in a game, you're really trying to strategically force someone to do things that's outside of their control. And if you can start to do that and they start to panic and they start to think that they need to do something extra to then win, or they start to overthink, you know, that's when you can really push the gas pedal because you're forcing them to lose focus.
2: It's funny, though know, Martin, I hear you say that. And if you flip that across to the corporate world, every client or customer is rushing, rushing you to get back to them, return an email, return a text, get to a quick meeting, respond to a brief. And it's very interesting. If you take that philosophy from the court, from the sand and put it into a boardroom, the application is the same where you've got to create your own, well, let's call it intention or your own, what do the military call it? Your own cadence. So that's very adaptable. And I think probably also to the family, I'm just thinking about a mum and dad running a family with children rather than just be the pace and reacting to it, just taking that moment to create a cadence, which I suspect then would show with their children and the whole household. Absolutely. And the science behind it would, would be all the cortisol not being you know, produced and everything else. That's interesting, isn't it? Because that is transitional into corporate world, home life, wellness. Is that something you guys are
3: working on uh, off off the court? What that plays into is a philosophy that, that I live by and I'm bringing to, to the world right now. It's, it's the three eyes. It's intention, it's integrity, and it's intensity. Always, always have an intention. Once you have that clear intention, you then move to building integrity around the intention. So it's the framework, it's the scaffolding through which you then move that intention through to bring it to life. And then as you bring it to life, then the discussion of intensity happens. Now you start to look at how can we strategically make something happen at a higher and higher rate, controlled to then come back and build bigger and better integrity. So it all comes back to integrity. And that happens on the court. And that exact same integrity that, let's say, I've built for myself is now applied to business being an entrepreneur and, and having a family down the road. So we're always building our integrity, but what's happening right now, and you nailed it with text messages and emails and everything's happening so quick and our attention span's really getting so, so tight. Social media is just flying off the handle. Even fitness as well, everyone wants that quick fix. We go right to intensity without <laughs> intention and without integrity. So it's really being strategic in, okay, Intensity is a way to elevate the experience and we control that to build integrity on our side. It's more maple gold, Robbo. He's
1: just
2: dropped it. Maple gold. That's gold. gold. We're swimming in maple around here lately. <laughs> we have a lot of maple going on. There's a lot of maple flowing through the studios. Mate, that's really nice. That's, um, I like the three is. That uh, That is gold. Tell me how, how do you, how does a team transition from, let's call it practice or rehearsal, to game day and delivering on game day. Was there something you guys learned that took you from the amount of work, training a number of times a day, day in, day out? What, was there something you learned as a secret that helped you go from the practice court onto the actual match court to deliver? So I firmly believe
3: that game day should be easy. Game day should be where it all just comes through clean it's it's that's where the practice shows but if you're training intentionally harder faster stronger a wide range of things and you're you're creating what i call a circle so you're owning a circle of your game however big that is wherever that is on the map you're creating your style of play and you know what that is when you get on the court you want to stay within the circle that you've trained and it shows up easily so, you train harder than game day always, and then now you take that circle and then you're looking to push the other team outside of the circle that they've trained and the second you have them outside of that circle where they all of a sudden believe they have to do something extra that they haven't trained, that's something like an error that's now where you're you have that person believing all of a sudden they need to do something special, and that's when pressure kicks in and and you take that moment so Game day, you don't have to do anything special because you've trained it.
2: People use the word strategy a lot. And I heard you say that in order to get to the Olympics, to get to London, there were some very big lead-up matches, which I think were almost do or die. And you and your partner designed a strategy that you employed that was to win the first three points. But I didn't understand why why you set that strategy and how that enabled you to go on a win what what was the thinking or the what was it what was the tactic behind that strategy
3: the tactic behind the strategy was i mean we we had the luxury of knowing that team, and so for the listeners we had to go to Mexico to play in a Continental Cup, which was a Davis Cup style. So it was two Canadian teams against two other teams. So we beat Cuba, we beat Puerto Rico, we beat uh, uh, D- Dominican Republic, and then we beat Mexico in the finals. And so we did that with the other Canadian team, and we've already played with that Canadian team for the last decade. So we know each other really well as individual athletes. So when we went home, we had this unique one single week to prepare for one match, which was a do or die against the team from Canada that we had just worked with to earn the Canadian berth. So we earned the Canadian berth as a a twosome and then we had to face off against each other to earn the right to then go to the Olympics and play. So there's a lot on the line. And we spent that week, which in reality, you never have a week to prepare for a single game. You just don't. So you generally speaking, understand... Strikes, weaknesses, tendencies, and then you just kind of create a game plan around it. Having a week for a single game against someone that we played against our whole lives, we developed a very strategic one, two, three that we trained every single day, knowing we were going to create a situation to bait them based on what they wanted to do. And it played out perfectly. And it was really just a matter of a luxury of time. We knew our opponents so well because we'd worked with them for years and we executed it to perfection. See, that can also translate to the corporate world
2: because many many businesses you work with don't know who their opponents are. And they spend so much time being reactive, chasing, working, getting stuff done, to-do lists, Yet when you actually query them on their competitors, what the competitors are doing, their positioning, the strategies they employ, they don't know. So mapping the battlefield in a branding sense is exactly the same, as you just said, that you had the luxury of it, but you made it a point, didn't you? Like you actually sat down and thought about the competitors and thought about, well, what will the strategy be? So I think that translates again into the business world, doesn't it, Martin? 100%,
3: 100%. I mean, if you can take control of the situation early and then lead that and dictate the pace of that, you then have the higher ground. And and the earlier that you can take the higher ground, the better. And and really, all the information was there. We, we just were able to create our own plan, um, execute it, and, and we had the higher ground as early as three points. Uh, and so throughout the entire match, we... We were then able to play within our circle what we had trained. We didn't have to do anything special. We just continued at that cadence, and, and it was great. So strategically, you know, those three points dictated the entire game and the outcome as one, two, three. I
2: reckon it's fair to say that Robo and I will never be Olympians, I think it's fair to say, Robbo. Steady I mean, up. I think we've we, we, Ste- we've let we've let that go, haven't we? Steady on <laughs> until until darts darts <laughs> <laughs> until darts make the Olympics. Then there's a chance. However, you have said that we could be Olympic, and I think this is something you wrote on your socials.
3: Tell me what we would do to become Olympic. I believe that the Olympic movement is is so powerful. And it's it's a movement that really brings people together because I hate to break it to you, but I'm not a superhuman man. I I'm a regular citizen. I just happen to fall in love with beach volleyball. I happen to grow to be six foot seven and and work really hard at my craft. But you know, the Olympics is is an amateur movement. We're all professionals per se, but you know, we're we're just humans, and so representing ourselves on the world stage, representing Canada for, on my side, you know, anyone could do that. And so to be Olympic is really just to represent yourself as, as best as you possibly can. And then when you go internationally, you know, you're know you representing, for your guys' sake of the argument, Australia to the best of your capabilities.
2: When you, when you were a kid, your parents exposed you to loads of sports, like you had a crack at everything. Do you think that as a philosophy has led to your success, not just the Olympics, but you as a man? Like, do you think the exposure to lots of different things, as opposed to laser beam on one thing, has that contributed to you being a success in your life and being
3: more fulfilled, do you think? Absolutely. I I firmly believe that a a physical movement is, is essential to life. And so I learned how to move my body create spaces and and shapes and and play different sports and hold myself in different situations and different pressures using different algorithms of movement or, or mental understanding of a game. All of that created a capacity for thinking, for reacting, for controlling myself, for being a good human being, for being a good teammate. I mean, every single stimulus that I've had throughout my life collectively allowed me to find my own unique nexus point within sport and that was beach volleyball so you know to counter that like this whole culture of sports specification or um early specialization in youth because we think the earlier they start the better they're going to be is is a total hoax it's not correct it is not good for kids to to stop playing to focus on a single thing because they lose themselves they lose their personal identity because it, it, it essentially becomes whether they won or they lost that day within that specific thing. They, they no longer can solve problems creatively using different implements and situations. So, you know, the more you play, the more you do, the more you explore yourself, the more you're, you look to arguably share your truth physically, mentally in different avenues, the better athlete you're going to be, hands down. You can ask all my Olympic friends, all my world champion friends, like each one of them in my cohort who are in the 30s, played every sport under the sun and didn't specialise until they were seventeen.
2: You're now doing a fair bit of work with youth kids and it seems to be quite a passion of yours, which I think is a really noble, a noble, noble cause to be of service to the generations coming through to share what you've been through and what you know. How do we how do we create a sense of resilience, grit backbone in these kids coming through? I mean, it's a different world we live in today. From your experience, speaking with them, working with them, what, what can parents, coaches, trainers of young kids do to build this true resilience where they can
3: deal with what's, what's ahead of them? So I'll, I'll take that two ways. <clears throat> One is that we have to be better. As the adults, as the administrator, as the coach, kids don't listen, they watch. So if you're telling a kid to do something and you don't live into that standard, then forget about it. So we need to be better. We need to hold ourselves to a higher standard physically, mentally, through our actions. We need to, if we say we're going to do something, we got to follow through. Um, So that's really important. Um, You know, for instance, a parent dropping their kid off at a private school, thinking just because they dropped $25,000, their kid's going to be a champion. But unfortunately, they don't hold themselves to that same standard. It's probably not going to work out. Two is... There has to be autonomy. We're living in a time where we cannot throw kids into something and tell them they have to do something because they likely won't do it or or they won't buy into it and they'll resist it. So once again, A, we need to be better, but then it cannot be this forced thing. There has to be a level of autonomy on the kid's side. So there has to be an invitation to participate. So I, I like to... To use the example of the movie Inception, where they planted these ideas inside of people's heads and then made them believe that they came up with the idea that was the only way it was going to come forward. And so we need to do the same thing with children is we have to create an opportunity for them to make a decision and participate on their own terms so that it shows up for them with some level of gratification in their lives. And so if we're not doing that and we're just dictating, we're going to lose these kids. Good answer. That was well, that would, that's more maple gold
2: (laughs) to Tell me something, when you, when you were a kid, a wee young lud, uh, as we spoke of at the head of the show, as they say in the business, you wrote about as a very young kid writing in your journal
3: about what you wanted to do. Do you still journal today? I do. Yes, every morning. How do you use it? I just put my thoughts down. You know, that that's a part of my morning routine where I, I like to get up, put the kettle on and, and then I, well, pick up a book and, and read a little bit just to get some juices flowing or I might have been stewing on some thoughts overnight and just wind up writing with no specific purpose other than just to get the voice inside of my head on a paper. And usually... I wind up coming up with something every single day that, that will serve me well. Any biography or autobiography of anybody who's achieved
2: anything in life, no matter what the field, has always had their disappointments, their, depending on what word you want to choose, their, their failures, their roadblocks, their stumbling blocks, their disaster, their tragedy. And it seems in your world you're no different, that you have had your challenges and hurdles in every aspect of your life to get to the success you've had and will have. How does Martin, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with disappointments? How do you deal with the naysayers?
3: Like what's the dialogue that goes through your mind? For me, it's all about the process and is high, I call it high performance hippie. As high performance hippie as it sounds, I'm not necessarily here for the end, but I'm here for the journey. And so every single day presents its challenges and it's about taking them in stride and i've had a few devastating moments whether it be injury um, whether I, i left my university team because my coach you know blew a mental gasket and i just would i refused to support a coach that stood for what he stood for and some people thought that was devastating and and i didn't because life goes on and i was able to find myself based on living into, you know, the standard that I wanted to bring into the world. And that created space for me to then build something after. And so, you know, living at a hundred percent every single day, you know, going back to the intensity talk, if you're living at a hundred percent, everything, every single day, and you expect it all to be good, and you're going to make this natural rise, like you got something coming. You know, I like to say that, if you live at 100%, you don't give your body or your mind rest. Your body is going to force a form of rest, and usually that's not convenient and it's painful, and you're going to have to figure it out in a tougher way. So you kind of have to have an ebb and a flow to your life. You need to periodize your intensity, and and sometimes when life hits you and you got to sit back a little bit, oftentimes that's that pause in life before you can really pull the sling back again to, to release the shot. And so there always has to be that ebb and the flow. And if you expect to be on top of your game all the time, then yeah, either a big one's coming or uh, you're super, super lucky, which I haven't met anyone who's that lucky. So here's the question. Ebb and flow, both of them,
2: big, both listeners of the show, um, you How do I know that I am recovering and I have a necessity to recover as opposed to slacking off? So discipline I've heard you talk about a lot. It's been something we have had as an underlying thread through our show for five seasons is that it seems like discipline is something we really need to focus on and bring into our world. And people would go, I need to recover. What that is is what Stephen Pressfield wrote about in The War of Art is just the resistance. It's just all the crap excuses we give ourselves to not get off the couch and go and work out. Yet the flip side is any high performer at 100% knows they do need to recover. Tell me your take on that grey area between true recovery and the resistance which means we're not getting after it. We're not doing the stuff. We're not doing the work we should. Like where's that fine line from what you used to do as an Olympian with your partner and also what you're seeing now in the corporate
3: world or the people you're training? Well, I'll describe it for myself. Um, There was a time where after the Olympics, I I fell out of love with the Olympics and it, it was hard for me to go to practice. And I was physically exhausted, I was hurt, and I just no longer was able to push through injuries. And, and I, it's the first time in my life I made up an excuse to miss practice. And so that was the moment where I went, holy smokes, this is not what I want to be doing. And so I, I'm, I'm too fatigued, I'm pushing too hard just because it's all I know how to do. And so I took a pause, I gave myself some space, and I was able to find my creative spirit and that wound up pulling me in a different way and I respected that and and wound up making my decision. So it was, you know, it took me four months to retire and and leave the sport that I love so dearly, but it also took me respecting what my body and my mind were telling me. So I fell out of love with it. And so that was, that wasn't, you know, I, I say it's easy now, but the writing was on the wall, but for someone, let's just say who's, you know, it's, it's work and it's less about, what they love to do. is just what they're doing. Rest doesn't always mean stopping rest. There's a thing called active recovery. You know, when you're training, let's just, let's just use the physical side as an example here. Active recovery doesn't mean you go sit on the couch. You're still showing up to practice. You're just dropping the intensity. You're still very intentional You're still building your integrity or you're easing off to allow your integrity to kind of recover. But the intensity is what you change. You don't change the intention. You don't change the integrity. And so active recovery or a different thing that's not as intense where you're focusing on other pieces of the puzzle. But stopping cold turkey is not how you rest. You still stay engaged and you still keep a pulse on it, you keep your fingertip on it. Um, so, to answer that question in life, you know, just stopping everything because you think that you need a rest—I I really don't think—is is the solution. You still need motion. You still need momentum, and keeping that personal touch. In whatever pursuit you have is essential. And if your body's telling that you need to stop doing that and find something else, then obviously respect that. But yeah, stopping cold turkey certainly isn't the solution to rest. You got to stay engaged and and feel it out and listen to your inner calling. But going back to three eyes, I mean, I like that as a process. So
2: you could audit yourself to go, I don't feel like doing what I need to do, whether it be reading or Attending something or engaging in a conversation, I think having a process like the three eyes gives you something to go back and, and almost audit your own thinking. And which, which leads you on the next part. This is kind of, I think, it's going to sit together. You quoted Bobby Maximus when you said the mind is primary. How, how are you incorporating the mental? into the physical training with the groups you work with. Now, perhaps the three eyes i's, is part of it, which is why I think I'm just segueing into this thing. Is that part of the mind is primary? Is it having something to audit yourself on? And are there other things, is that the case? And is, that, is there something else you're using to bring that mind is
3: primary into the training you do with individuals or groups? Absolutely, there is. So I believe... The the conduit, the gateway to the mind is the breath, and so I'm deep in a process right now of incorporating what's called the art of breath by uh, Ryan McKenzie, Rob Wilson. Um, they're they're doing an amazing service to humanity right now by bringing a nasal breathing protocol to life, and it's not about fitness by any means. It's it's about tapping in and and really dealing with your ability to dissipate and handle stress. And so what I'm doing is in my personal physical practice, I had a client before this call who I only allowed her to breathe through her nose for an entire hour. And once again, it it does parallel into the, the intensity bit, but if you're focused only on breathing through the nose, you have to be very conscious and methodical about how you use your resources. And if you aren't, intentional about your integrity, not to use the two eyes. but if you're not intentional about that, things can escalate really freaking quickly and you lose control. So the second you're only nasal breathing, it it engages especially in the exhale through the nose. it, It activates the vagus nerve and brings you back down into parasympathetic. So it brings you down. It down regulates the nervous system. And so you wind up having this governor on your physical activity so you can't go higher within the intensity, now you have to learn about yourself. You have to learn about what you're capable of doing. So I, I liken it, and this, this is all from the art of breath, and I'm, I'm playing with it on the daily so I can vouch for it, is imagine if you had five gears in your body. Well, the first three gears in an ideal world happened through nasal breath only. You see, your, your nose is meant for breathing. Your mouth is meant for eating, digestion, and communication. And so if you shut your mouth and you only breathe through your nose, the amount of engagement in your brain is is incredible. But you wind up really having to pay attention to how you're engaging in the activity. And you wind up playing with this limit at the top of the third gear that's so cerebral within the workout because you're, you're dictating everything versus you just perform a workout and you die after. And then you recover for 10 minutes lying on your back. So it's really about Understanding how your breath and how you can handle your physiology before you enter a situation. And then what's the dialogue and the management of your resources throughout your workout is, a, is how I really build out uh, the mind. And if you guys want to see this at the pinnacle right now, uh, his name's Mark Menga. He's out of uh, Florida. Uh, he's, he's in Miami. I think it's at Mark Menga. He's doing all his conditionings with tape over his mouth. And you look at what this guy's doing with nasal breathing and it's mind blowing. So, you know, the, the breath dictates the mental state. And so that's where, you know, on a fitness side, this is where everyone is yearning for this intensity, thinking that everything is about intensity, that more intense I go, the higher the yield. Incorrect. It's not about intensity. And breath is a way to control that for both minds and body.
2: It's really interesting, Martin, because um, Wim Hof has made a big name for himself in the last couple of years around the Wim Hof method of breathing. Ben Greenfield on his big, big podcast he does worldwide has been very big on breathing. Mark Devine talks about box breathing. Like it's... There really is something going on with this, uh, with this sort of uh, kind of hack they call it, I guess, behind breathing. Is it like there, there sounds to be a lot of science and data now building up behind something as simple as
3: breathing? Absolutely, it's it's big, and, and so the art breath was was aligned with Wim Hof for quite some time, and, and they just realized that the mouth breathing is sympathetic, and so in this current world. We don't need more sympathetic. We don't need more stimulus. In fact, we're every single day we're fighting too much stimulus. We, we've never had to deal with this much stimulus, and so these guys went more on the nasal breathing side, which which will likely they use some of the box breathing that Mark Divine's talking about, and certainly pull a little bit from Wim Hof. And there there's a few other gentlemen that and and movement patterns. And listen, guys, breathing's been around forever. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> something that we all have to breathe. And it's kind of the ongoing joke where I try to get someone excited about breathing. They just yeah that's like right, an yeah. absolute idiot. Like I breathe. Like, yeah, but you breathe like a moron. <laughs> you, you you're not attached to your body. <laughs> and, and so, you know, talking about how I apply this, if I'm working with a, <clears throat> a group of 20 to 40 youth, let's just say, and I have them lie on their back and, and I just say, breathe for me, Every single one of them does not use their diaphragm and they breathe up into their shoulders. They, they have no idea. No one knows how to breathe. These kids don't know how to breathe properly anymore. And so the breathe up, the vertical breath with the shoulders, it just perpetuates this stimulation of, of that fight or flight. It's, it's sympathetic. But if you <laughs> are consciously breathing in and out through your nose, like, hey, wow, I can actually control my environment and I can control my thoughts and I can calm this anxiety or, or depression Boat, It's, it's really phenomenal, but guys, we, yeah, it's, it's breath work. It's been around for a while.
2: I think, mm. I think it's cool. I And i and I just think there's so much science and data now sitting behind it. It's got to be a something. Tell me just a couple of quick things. I'm very conscious of your time. You've been very gracious to allow us to chat with you today. Tell me a moment in competition on the sand where you truly understood who you were and what you're about. Do you recall a moment where you you kind of just went, that's it? Like now, now I get it. Now I know why I'm here. Now I know what I'm about. Do you ever recall
3: a moment like that? Absolutely. <clears throat> um it was it was the final point um before. We eventually won. Uh, We beat Mexico in in the the finals of the Continental Cup to to earn the right for Canada to compete at the Olympics. And we had just come through a comeback. So we were down and and it was panic mode. And I was back at the service line and I hadn't served well the, the entire match. I just didn't have my mojo. And so I was back there and I focused on all of the training that I had done and all of the mindset work and the belief in myself and, and the constructing of certain services for certain moments. And, and in that moment, I realized that this was the moment to pull out the serve. And so what the serve that I'm talking about, we built earlier on and you guys are going to laugh at this. We called it the Christopher Columbus. And, and it was designed for this team that was in Mexico, the Mexican team. <laughs> and it was The Christopher Columbus was from position five, which is bottom left, to go over to the other position five, which is essentially no one serves there and no one does that angle. And so we were serving the smaller guy throughout. And this was the moment to catch them off guard and to do what they did not expect. But it took a massive amount of balls to do because we hadn't done it all tournament. And so I just went back. and and realized in that moment that this was the time to do it and there was this moment where I went I'm not going to do it and then I kind of hypothetically slapped myself in the face knowing that everything that was on the line and that my ethos as a human being was was to do it was to live large and and to make full use of that moment knowing that I would prepared and I I just had to trust myself and I had to trust in my skill set as a human being and I went back there and rifled the serve, that wound up creating a, a really tough, challenging situation on their side and, and we won that point. And so, you know, the moment where I doubted myself, the moment where everything was on the line, I could have backed down, I could have said no, I, I could have very easily have just done something different and my partner would have not, would not have known the difference. And in that moment, I, I held myself accountable to the standard that I'd set out for myself earlier on. And, um, yeah, that's what comes to mind.
2: When you are playing at the level you're playing at, there's no way you can get to that level by being comfortable. So every training session, every day, every month, for four years leading up to that event, you you have to be making yourself uncomfortable. Now you are creating a new career and you've got a load on the go. How are you bringing that discomfort into your world today? So in your normal day to day, how do you approach that that
3: area of being uncomfortable in order to grow? So within my physical practice, on, on a daily, I, I'm doing some form of movement practice that either challenges me or, or forces me to think and, and be really int- intentional about how I, how I move or how I breathe or what skill that I'm building. So, um, that's something that comes up for me. And, and two, what I'm doing right now is so outside of my comfort zone, although there's a hundred percent alignment with, with, you know, my truth and, and what I'm sharing—it scares the crap out of me. I've I've never done this stuff before. I've I not had a podcast before. I haven't. I have spoken before, but not at this level. Like it's no longer the safe speaking where I get to talk about a fun story that I went through and no one can call me out on it because it was my story. Like now I'm actually putting my philosophies out into the world. And, and sharing them. And it, it, I could very easily be called out. I, I'm, I'm super vulnerable right now. Uh, but same time, I love it. And I know that's a part of the growth. And the only way that I'm going to make change in the world as I see it is if I go beyond myself for something that I believe to be far beyond myself.
2: If, if I could go back and sit with your mom and dad and say, give me three words to describe Martin, what would your mum and dad say? What would the three words they'd
3: use? Intense, compassionate and silly. (laughs) And here's
2: here's, uh, the final question I've got for you. If we could play a song for you in the studio right now and it's a song that you said, if you listen to that song, that's the best representation of who I am as a man. What would the song be? Oh man, that's so good.
3: My friends by the red hot chili peppers. Um, that 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 one's just a beauty that always puts me in a good place. But you know, I, I could go a number of different directions with with this one. My-
2: This has been fantastic. I could actually talk to you for hours. I think your take on the world you've come from, the world you're creating, the purpose you've got for your country, the way you articulate your thoughtful you you choose your words wisely, and it, and they are wise words chosen wisely, mate. I've really really enjoyed our time, and uh, we're very
3: grateful for you spending time on the Mojo Radio show. Thank you, mate. It was my pleasure, and I love the word Mojo. Um, Austin Powers was was <laughs> a, a of my relief uh, on on tour. We we loved watching his movies, and so we, we'd always joke about Mojo. And I, I call my my girlfriend; she's got Mojita right now. She's she's on fire. So, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The the mojo is is a part of our daily conversation. So thank you to you guys for uh, making it easy for me to to hop in. No, it's Austin
2: now. People who want to learn more about you, mate, where where do you send people?
3: Uh, right now, it's just straight up Instagram. As I get my my personal website kind of rebuilt based on all of the stuff that we spoke about right now. Uh, so it's Martin M A R T I N J Reader. That's uh, that's an easy one. And then the off ball uh, philosophy is on. Offball athlete on uh, on Instagram on Instagram yeah both of those being on Instagram uh, that's that's where I'm sharing all of my current content and my, my podcast episodes and if you're interested Terrific. in the breath work uh, my off-ball podcast number three is with Rob Wilson one of the founders of the art of breath. I'm going to use that for my rugby team
2: yeah I'll put all those links in the uh, in the show notes mate. Um, Thank you. It's been absolutely terrific. And thanks again to Stan Peak, who's a, a mutual mate who put us in touch. She's, uh, Stan is the man. That he is.
3: That he all is. Hail all hell,
2: Stan. Oh, hell, the man. <laughs> thanks, mate. Really appreciate your time. It's been great. Yeah, it was fantastic.
3: This is Tate Fletcher, Cage Fighter. Listen to Mojo Radio Show, or I'll be coming to see you.
2: So, whilst we are on sport, I met up with some Hawaiian sporting royalty in Honolulu last week. Oh, do tell. Well, I set up a makeshift studio, mm. nothing like our original studio, but it was a makeshift studio on Waikiki at the Marriott. Hello to all my friends at the Marriott. Um, Does it have a leopard skin couch? No, it doesn't, but it did have a view of Waikiki, <laughs> which was pretty amazing. Uh, And it did have a bar fridge. so that'd be right. I'm just saying, I'm sorry, AP, (laughs) it did have a bar fridge. I know I didn't take you with me in my bag, (laughs) blah, 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 whatever. Boo-hoo. But I met up with a guy called Kenny Harrison. Now, Kenny Harrison is a baseball legend in Hawaii. He represented Hawaii. He played internationally. Kenny's one of those guys where you walk down the street next to him and everybody's looking at you. And you think you're pretty important until you realise that no one's looking at you. They're all going, there's Kenny Harrison. (laughs) It's really cool. Did you really think they were looking at you? Let's be honest. Yeah, negative. (laughs) Uh, But he's he's such a nice guy. He's got this incredible smile. And people would stop Kenny and want to talk to him. And he talked to everybody. He leaned into conversations. He was curious about them. He never talked about himself. He was just the loveliest, loveliest man. So I grabbed Kenny and said, "Can I have some time for the show?" And I just wanted to question him on what's it mean to be Hawaiian in the sporting realm. So, how do you represent? What traits do you take as a Hawaiian into the international sporting arena? So, here's me just a, a quick chat with Kenny Harrison. Kenny, let's put you in picture, Robbo. He's like the the Lee Matthews of Hawaii. He's like the Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> He's like the Michael Jordan of Hawaii, and he did it through baseball. And I didn't know any of this until I arrived and I started hanging out with Kenny. But apart from all that, he's just one of the toppest blokes I've met in ages. Kenny, good to see you, brother. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Yeah, good. Now, put us all in the picture. Yep. Let's talk about your baseball career. Give me, give me the the snapshot. Okay. Where did you and what did you do in your baseball career?
4: Uh, well, I played here at the University of Hawaii, um, and I was uh, All American uh, my senior year. So um, from there, I played in Japan uh, for a couple years uh, professionally, and then played with the Pirates for about, uh, about a year or so, around there, a little less. Mm. Short career, but it was good. I, I was I was pretty good, you know. And so uh, I, mean, I think I made a name for myself here in Hawaii because it was such a big. Um, huge uh opportunity for a lot of young kids, local boys, and you know, it was a there was a game in town. So everybody loved to be there. And it was so it was fun. So, you know, I was happy go lucky guy, kinda how you and I met, you know, and <laughs> so we've had some fun. And uh it, it you know, it was it was great because it kinda catapulted me into to my career where where I am today. Mm. Yeah.
2: So you got five boys and <clears throat> you got one boy who's kind car- get this Robert, he's got his own baseball card so yeah. cool he's got to name his face on a baseball card where's your son playing at the moment
4: uh, right now he's in the uh, milwaukee brewers organization yeah, right. so he's in spring training right now um getting ready to you know get shipped off somewhere um uh, but before that he was playing at oregon state who just was in the mm. college world series um last year so uh-huh. yeah, yeah it's been good. good yeah yeah he's he's all right man he, he's good he's good <laughs> he's solid he's, he's working hard he's uh you know, done a lot of good things just as a human, you know, getting to the point, working hard and mm-hmm. putting the time in to um, be where he is. Been a good lead brother, I would say, for mm-hmm. all the rest of the four brothers he does have at home. So, yeah, I, I see it being all right. Yeah. So,
2: the reason I asked was obviously you're very, and I thought it was super cool seeing his card. Yeah. But apart from that, when you and I were talking, having a coffee together, you said you coached kids for, for three years. Words were, man, it was hard.
5: Yeah.
2: yeah. How did you find? How did you find, and how did you approach coaching young guys in baseball?
4: Well, actually, I, I I've coached uh, a long time. Uh, I, I I was a head coach at uh, Punahou School here in Hawaii, one of the most pre- prestigious schools around, mm. uh, for three years. But prior to that, I, I had coached young kids, my my oldest and my middle ones, all the way through, um, through that time. I, and, and I I think the yeah as as we I coached and kept going through it, things just seemed to, to change
0: mm.
4: you know uh, kids were different um you know how you approach a, a player a child was different you know um so for some reason i don 't know where it changed, but it just started to to change mm. so it, it's just become uh more difficult you know like you talked in your um speeches with us here about everything quick, 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 Mm -hmm. you know, and so everything's instant, instant, instant gratitude and gratification, all that stuff. So I think it's just changed full circle now, where as a coach, it's just a very different approach. Mm -hmm. Very, very different approach where I'm old school. You know, what's
2: old school? Old, old school, school, man. How you know. Did
4: you old school? Oh man, old school. I mean, you know, dad used to yell at me, you know, all the way from, you know, the park to home and just understand that, you know, hard work and you know, it's just yes sir, and it was just very much so that. You know, I think kids now are more apt to questioning, uh just having their own opinion, which is great. Mm. It's just as a coach understanding that, as a parent understanding it and trying to mold, you know, your son to fit kind of within there. Right. Mm So I, you know, it's hard because I think for me and and my wife, you know, we, we live with our kids, right. Mm -hmm. We, we can mold them like a piece of clay. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and and make them the way we want and kind of shape them, but we can't, you can't do that for every kid. Mm -hmm. So, you know, understanding that and trying to mold kids and figure them out, but understanding how to teach them that, you know, my father worked Three jobs, like I told you, man. I barely had anything, you know? And so to to try and teach kids that and understand that it's hard because kids don't start at that level anymore because our parents have helped them get to a higher level where they're starting, you know? It's kind of, it's tough. It's so it's how do, you, yeah. how
2: do you do that, Kenny? How yeah. are you approaching teaching yeah. the boys about, because you said mm. your, your dad worked three jobs. You said yeah. he was a hard worker. Yeah. And he taught you discipline. Sure. Yeah. He taught you hard work in mm-hmm. old school.
4: Yeah. Yeah.
2: How are you bringing that to the boys? Like yeah. how do you approach resilience and grip with your great heart? great
4: question. You 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 kinda of have to have that that balance, I think, you know, where it's it's hard, you know, on the kids a lot and, and you you you're driving them, but at the same time, you're loving them too at the mm-hmm. same time. You know, old school is just, you know, hard, 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 mm-hmm. right? It's just and so I, I learned a lot about that and understanding that part. So, you know, my job was to teach my kids and to be good men, great men, mm. you know, to be able to treat people correctly and understand that. So, you know, when you're in your own home and your own kind of bubble silo, you you keep that, you know? Mm. So I, I've taught them that and, and I've, I've let them know that, you know, you got to work hard. I think mm. sales has helped me too at the same time. Mm. Um, you know, being an athlete, you're always working, you're getting injuries, you got to work through it. Um, but I think sales has taught me a ton of, I've been in 20 plus years now and it's taught me a lot about that. Mm-hmm. Resilience. Mm-hmm. You know, people telling you no.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: I mean, not right now. You know, mm-hmm. come back. You know, when you first start off, it's like, oh, my goodness. But now, as I climb in my youthful age, um, you know, you understand that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I've taught my kids that hey, you got to work hard. You want to be this person, you still got to work hard. Mm-hmm. You have to put the time in. It's not going to be given to you. And I think baseball kind of, the game itself teaches you a lot about that, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of failure you know 3 out of 10 success yeah you know and you're you're great you are you're on a yeah. famer yeah. Yeah. yeah i mean you're failing 70% of the time so i think those lessons in within baseball teach you that, right? That it is a grind that you, you, you know, you might be able to, you know, do a basketball lesson, learn how to dribble better. Yeah. You're going to have good handles, better skills, but baseball, no matter how much I teach you how to hit, Mm. you still got to hit between eight guys defending you. It's it's hard to be successful. Mm. So I think the game of baseball that I learned and then things from my father, my parents helped me, but at the same time, I've kind of molded it where I still love my kids, I have a good time. Like I have a good time with you, you know, just laughing, having a good time. So there's a good balance now for me. Um, where in the beginning part of my oldest son, I was on him a lot, mm. but you know, I came home one day when he was eight years old. Said, hey, he told my wife, I I don't think I want to play anymore. Mm. I was like, whoa. You know, so I had to look myself in the mirror and say, I got to change. I got to I got to figure out a way to keep him you know, engaged, loving his game, loving me, because at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. I want him to be my best friend. Right. It'd be a big risk. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I started doing that. And as as he got older, 10, 11 and now 21, he's my best friend. Mm -hmm. He calls me every day, Mm -hmm. (laughs) every day, Mm -hmm. you know, about things. So I, I think I found a good formula. Can I um,
2: maybe yeah. take one of those calls, given the fact he's got a baseball card? Yeah. It'd be kind of cool to talk to him. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, to, know, to know something. Oh, any, any, now, any I've never for spoken, any spoken anybody has got their own baseball card. That's, yeah. that's cool. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. cool.
4: He's got his own card. I mean, it's it's one that he's he's gotten, hopefully he'll get more. But yeah, I mean, he's a humble kid and uh, worked his tail off, you know. And and so, but again, I think it's that balance. And like he says, he 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 calls me all the time, you know, asks me for advice. Yeah.
2: Kid going cross, playing in Milwaukee. Yeah. What does it mean to him Mm -hmm. to be Hawaiian? Mm -hmm. What does it mean? What have you instilled in him, your belief, what it means to be Hawaiian, a proud Hawaiian?
4: Yeah, I think it's just, you know, um, family, you know, is is always first, right? Working hard. Mm. And and the biggest thing, too, is being humble. Mm. I think, you know, being born and raised here, I have a little Hawaiian in me, about an eighth, you know, and my kids have some in there. Um, I think a lot of it is being humble, mm. you know, playing the game right, doing things correctly, mm. you know, you know, knowing that, you know, when someone talks to you, you're respectful and all those good things. So I think he knows that. And, and if you ever speak with him, you'd be like, Hey, yeah, this, this kid's a good dude. Good guy. A good guy. Yeah. Just so just like, just like, Kenny. Just like, his, dad. <laughs> just like yeah, his dad, just like his dad. Okay. So yeah, just, just good fun. And, but yet very humble, you know, no, no don't need much attention at all, you know, doesn't want to be mm. in the limelight. And so I think that that's just kind of the, the culture itself. It's a very, very, you know, like they say, mellow kind of humble culture, mm. you know? So I think that's what he's taking away to be Hawaiian, representing the, the state of Hawaii uh, is important to him as well, mm. you know, and knowing, you know, the the legacy of, of his name, Harrison, mm-hmm. last name, he knows that as well within the baseball community. Mm-hmm. So I think he knows a lot of those things and he'll tell you that. I mean, you, you hear it in his voice, you know? So, you know, I think it's hard work from my wife and, and myself trying to just raise some good Harrisons. Yeah.
2: Tommy, you, you've obviously played a lot of good games. So You think back to your career, here, yeah. Japan, mm-hmm. All-American. Tell me a piece of advice, a coach gave to you that you remember from your playing days that you still apply to your sales days today
4: oh that's a great question man oh you put me on a spot on that one
2: man th- th- what are you th- doing it was gonna be easy you know you're compare. from Australia
4: so far away you got all these questions like <laughs> man <laughs> um I, I think I think the the best advice that I was ever given was to never give in never give in mm. you know mm. never give in you know because you're you're facing guys every single day that are coming in here from big schools and whatnot, and you know they're they're top-notch players, but if you don't give in, I think, well, I know, uh, you won't give up.
0: Mm.
4: You know, you just can't give in because if you give in, you give up. Mm. So I don't give in and I never give up and I try to teach my sales reps the same thing mm. is that, you know, you, you can't give in. Customers going to tell you no. It just means no right now. You got to yeah, just yeah, keep exactly. going, right? Yeah. You have to keep going, keep building that relationship. So uh, again, I say if you give in, you give up and and so I think that's probably the best advice that I've used going forward you know because you know I'm just I love trying to close I love meeting people and saying okay you know what is it then you know we got great product here you tell me right so you just can't give in if you do you give up
1: you know you mentioned the boogie board last week that you got given you didn't go boogie boarding with him
2: did you no no I did I I donated the boogie board to the staff of the Marriott so uh, thank you later guys yeah nice God of Rock. Thank you for this
4: chance to kick ass. We are your humble servants. Please give us the power to blow people's minds with our high-voltage rock. In your name we pray.
0: Amen. 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 Now let's get out there and melt some faces!
1: The Mojo Radio Show's Lessons in Rock. I'm going to turn the show on its head this week. I've got a lesson of rock. Do tell. I was flicking around on Netflix the other day and came across what has to be... The best documentary I've seen in the past easily 10 years and it's not just from a rock perspective. It's all about John Mellencamp and it's called Plain Spoken. Have you seen that at all? Not yet. Not yet, well you should, can I tell you because it is full of gold. From little snippets of him talking about overcoming spina bifida as a kid and the effect that had on him as a as a grown up, to living with his grandma who told him every day, "Don't forget you're the luckiest, handsomest, most talented boy in the world." I mean, what sort of base could any songwriter who wants confidence want to come from with, mm. you know, hearing that until the age of 42? But one of the ones that got me the most and made me think of you being a bit of a country cowboy and loving your blue jeans was this. <laughs> (laughs) Creating
5: my own image was no image at all, because the image that was given to me by the record company was so far off base of who I was and what I thought that I wanted to do. Now don't forget, I had no idea what it was I wanted to do, but I knew what I didn't want to do, which is half the battle. I did not want to be Johnny Cougar. I did not want to sing love songs. You know, I did not want to be the next Neil Diamond, which is what they wanted for me. They said it to me, you need to be the next Neil Diamond, and I went, "I, I don't want to be the next anything. So I had to figure out what my image was, and I had a girl say to me, John, just be a pair of blue jeans. That's what you are. Be a pair of blue jeans, don't be any more, don't be any less the great thing about blue jeans is you can dress them up or you can dress them down. You can put a shirt and tie on with them or you can wear a t-shirt with them. And you can do whatever you want to do in a pair of blue jeans.
1: I don't know about you, but I'll be wearing my blue jeans every day from now on. Did his grandmother tell him not to smoke? No, <laughs> I don't think that was in there. No. Although no. he does talk about his smoking. Yeah. She may have said it, but that's not
2: what he heard. But <laughs> I think I've always been a Mellencamp fan or a John Cougar fan. Am I showing my age? But Yeah. Don't call him that. He'll knock you out. I think to do what John talks about in that little piece, you have to know yourself. And I think most importantly, you got to know what you stand for and what you stand against. And Hearing him go through that, it made me remember Dr. Meg Jay, who was on the show within the last month or so, and she was amazing, wasn't she? Yeah, awesome. Now, Dr. Meg Jay said we should ask ourselves, what are you willing to fight for? And to me, hearing Mellencamp talk and reflecting on what Meg said is that you have to know what's worth fighting for. In order to do that, you have to know yourself, and you've got to know what's wrong to know what's right mm. and part of that to be is saying no and i think to say no you really have to be comfortable in your own skin and if you're running a company whether it be as a marketing manager or a ceo or a procurement manager you know you've got to know what the company stands for like what's the what's the company purpose what's the company dream because once you know those things once you know what your brand stands for you can start to decide what to say no to. And I think the great companies of the world, and we spoke to David Heinemir Hansen about this, who was the guy behind Basecamp and wrote the book Rework. And he said the same thing. He said, you've got to know what the company stands for in order to be able to fight for it. And I love the fact that Mellencamp is a fighter and he's still out there fighting now. He does a a big country concert every year. To raise money to help out the farmers, he's a big country boy who fights for it. Farm aid, absolutely, and he lives—he
1: lives the lifestyle. I mean, he still lives in small town USA. You know, he, he, everything he talks about in his music, he is, and that—that's—that's that's the other thing that gets me about Mellencamp as a songwriter. Well, that
2: is a good way to finish the show. We're out. Well,
0: That's what I want